In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, there is a, a tragic reality that I think that all of us, no matter whether we call ourselves a believer, a follower of Jesus, not a follower of Jesus, whether we consider ourselves a church person, not a church person, and really doesn't matter what stage of life or season of life that we happen to be in, but there is a tragedy uh, that we've all experienced. It, it's a reality that when it happens, we don't often know that it is happening. We only figure out sometime later that we actually found ourselves in the middle of something that we would have never wanted to be a part of. Uh, it's something that causes us to lose time and to lose opportunities, and it's just a tragic reality that you've experienced and that I've experienced. And, and here's my observation about it and see if this has ever happened to you. It's so easy for us and it's so easy for you and so easy for me. It's so easy for us to become underwhelmed with that which once overwhelmed us. That's, that's the tragic reality that I think probably you've experienced and I know that I've experienced that it's so easy for us to become underwhelmed with that which once overwhelmed us. Uh, think about over the course of your life and think about it in whatever context you want to think about it. Think about how quickly the amazing can become average. Think about the first time you went to the restaurant and oh my goodness, the meal was amazing. It was incredible, it was spectacular. And then you went back the second time and it was amazing, it was spectacular again. And you went back the third time, it was amazing, it was spectacular. Then you went back the fourth time and the fifth time and it was just what you expected because that's kind of how things work. Things go from amazing to average without us even noticing. Something can go from unique and fantastic to common and familiar and we're not even paying attention to that is actually happening. Uh, something can go from extraordinary to ordinary all of a sudden, and it seems like we hadn't even thought about it or we didn't even recognize it, but all of a sudden, that which was once extraordinary, when we think about it and when we look at it or when we hear it or when we experience it, it it's just ordinary because that's kind of how life works. And I think it's quite tragic that it happens so easily because when this happens, we become numb and we become really emotionally unaffected by that which once upon a time we found remarkable and maybe even breathtaking. Uh, once upon a time, something moved us emotionally, but it no longer moves us emotionally. Once upon a time, we thought it was amazing, but it's no longer amazing. We do this with things. Uh, and remember that time you bought that truck? It was your favorite truck ever. That car you bought it was your favorite car ever. And you determined that you were not gonna park it amongst the commoners. You were going to park your car out there in the middle of nowhere by yourself because no one loved their vehicle like you loved your vehicle and you would never trust your vehicle to be around the rubbish and how they treated their vehicle and how they opened their doors and you just weren't going to do that. And you decided when you bought that vehicle because you love that vehicle, it was your favorite vehicle ever, that no one at any point or at any time 
would ever eat or drink inside your vehicle. Even if Jesus showed up and offered you communion in that vehicle, you would tell Jesus, Jesus, later, wait, wait till when we get somewhere because this, this is my vehicle. I'm going to keep it clean forever. And then something happened. You really didn't even think about it, but some things happened you couldn't control and you were in a hurry or you were running late and you decided, well, I'll park there once and then you park there again. And, and then you just joined us commoners and you were parking among us. And then all of a sudden you were going through a drive through in that car and you were reaching down into the bag because you couldn't wait till you got home to eat the French fry and all those little salt particles got down there in your leather and you couldn't believe what was happening, but it was happening. And that's what happens. We do this with things. We do this with people. If you don't believe me, those of you who are married, you already know this is true. Because now you're married, but once upon a time you dated and it was different. I don't care what anybody says, it was different. You couldn't get him to shut up, now you can't get him to talk. Right, you all would talk about everything. Now, now you really don't talk about anything unless it's job related or the kids or you know, something that's just not really you know, whatever. You just don't talk about the things you used to talk about. Used to, you couldn't even get off the phone with each other. It was like, no, you hang up first. No, 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 you hang up first. And, no, I love you more. No, I love you more. And, and good night. And you hang, let's hang up at the same time, okay? One, two, th no, you didn't hang up. And, and, you know, but then you got married and, and things are different now. Uh, you may say better, but it's different. Things just, it just happens. We do this with people. Christians do this with churches. You know, we find a new church and we love that church and it's extraordinary and it's amazing. And, and we love everything about it. And we're telling everybody, hey, you need to come. You, I want to invite you. You know, you, you don't like church. Good, come to my church. You, you know, you've not had church until you've had my church. And so, you know, and then six months later, a year later, we just don't even notice it anymore. It's all so ordinary. It's all so common. It's all so familiar because this is what happens to us. And tragically, this happens in areas of our faith. And it specifically, I think, happens when it comes to the Christmas story. Because the Christmas story has become so familiar to every single one of us, whether you believe it or not. I mean, you, you've got it down. Mary, Joseph, there's the baby Jesus, swaddling clothes, manger, there's shepherds, there's wise men, there's angels. You know, you got the whole thing. Caesar Augustus, King Herod. You know, you got the storyline down. You've heard it so many times. You've seen it depicted so many times, and now it's just so common. It's so familiar. It's so unremarkable. Once upon a time, there was a season, there was a period, there was, there was that moment in time where you saw it as it was, and it was extraordinary, and it was amazing, and it took your breath away. The meaning of Christmas, the truth behind Christmas, but then as much as you didn't want it to happen, and, and as much as you didn't think about it happening, all of a sudden you ended up in a place where you, you just don't even think about it anymore. It's not remarkable, it's common, it's ordinary. It's something you know all too well and, and you just don't even think about it. You sing the songs, you hear the songs of Christmas and, and you don't even think about the lyrics. And, and the thing about Christmas songs is this, Christmas songs are maybe the most pointed lyrics that we sing as far as a specific time of the year goes. And Christmas songs come along to help guide our thoughts in a particular direction at a particular point of the year. And we sing these songs or we hear people sing these songs and the thing that we sit back and do, we end up critiquing and we pay attention to the arrangement, we pay attention to the vocal and we like that version and we don't like that version. And all of a sudden we're not even thinking about the words anymore. One of my favorite lines out of one of my favorite Christmas songs is this, long lay the world in sin and error pining. I mean, in one sentence, in one sentence, the songwriter captures thousands of years of history 
where men and women waited on the promise of Christmas. Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. To say that Christmas is that thing which taught us how valuable that each of us are to God. That apart from Christmas, we would have never had any understanding of how valuable we are in the eyes and the heart of God until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. We just hear those words and we don't even think about it. We're not moved by it. Hark the herald, angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. And then listen to this, God and sinners reconciled. Reconciled. That which was torn apart, that which was broken has been put back together. It has been healed. The relationship has been restored. God and sinners reconciled. That something happened at Christmas that made it possible for me and for you and for us who were separated from God, torn apart in our relationship from God, something was made possible so that we could be reconciled back to God. And we hear that phrase, God and sinner reconciled. And we don't even think about it. It's just a lyric. It's just, hey, the time of the year. And it's not extraordinary. It's not amazing. It's not emotionally moving. It's just common. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. And then listen to this part. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. And if that's true, if he was born so that man would no longer die, if that's true, if that's the story, if that's the implication of Jesus showing up on the pages of history, showing up on this planet, that is extraordinary. That is wonderful. That is remarkable. That is breathtaking. That is awe-inspiring. That should stop us in our tracks when we think about truth like that. Born so that man no more would have to die. That Christmas makes possible eternal life. Eternal life. We've heard that phrase, eternal life, so much. It is just a thing. Eternal life. And if that's what Christmas is all about, that, that should be extraordinary in our hearts and in our minds. We should never be underwhelmed with such an overwhelming story like Christmas. I think that's how John thought about not only the story of Christmas, but I think that's how John thought about the story of Jesus. And, and that's what we've been talking about all this month is John, who was the cousin of Jesus. He was one of the disciples of Jesus. He was the best friend of Jesus. John thought of Jesus as the savior of the world, the son of God. Jesus was John's Lord, even though it was his cousin and best friend. I think that when John thought about not only the birth of Jesus and the arrival of Jesus on this planet, but also the story of Jesus, I thought, I think that he thought of something that was absolutely extraordinary, something that was absolutely overwhelming. And I think that when he sat down to either write or dictate his biography of Jesus that we call the gospel of John, I think that one of his goals were simply this, that his goal was to make sure that none of us would ever have a good reason to be underwhelmed with such an overwhelming story. Because the tendency for you, the longer you're in this thing called faith, the longer that you're part of the local church, the longer that you're exposed to this, 
the greater danger you are of this all just becoming common and ordinary and becoming numb to it and not thinking about it anymore and not being moved by it anymore. And John, I think, when he wrote his biography of Jesus, I think he was determined that none of us would have to be ever reasonably underwhelmed with such an overwhelming story. And when John wrote the story of Jesus, he wrote about it all. He wrote about it from the beginning to the end. Because I think he understood that every part of Jesus' life helps us to understand the point of Jesus' life. And if you begin to grow numb to or neglect a part of Jesus' life, you will in turn diminish and not appreciate and not be moved or not see how remarkable or extraordinary or overwhelming the point of Jesus' life. You'll miss it. And so John said, when I'm writing this gospel, this account, I'm writing to turn unbelievers into believers. I'm going to give them evidence. I'm going to give them signs. I'm going to give them reasons to believe. Because every person should have good reason for placing their faith in Jesus. And he says, when you, if you decide to believe in Jesus, to believe that he was who he said he was, that what he did when he died on the cross, when he was buried and raised from the dead, when you decide to believe in that, and that the implications of his death, burial, and resurrection is personal, but it's also global. It's also cosmic. When you believe in the full thing of what Jesus came to do, the result is life. That believing in his name, John would say, you may have life. And so he sets out to tell this story. And when he tells the story, he begins with the beginning. And so we're going to go back and we're going to work our way through this. And we're going to end John's introduction to Jesus this morning. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. That's how he begins it all. This is how John begins his introduction of Jesus. He, the Logos, Jesus, his cousin, his savior, this rabbi from Nazareth, he was with God in the beginning. And he's using language again. We've only been talking about this. This is the third week. And some of us have already heard this three times. It's like, hey, what's the big deal? Let's move on. Let's talk about something else. It's also ordinary. It's also familiar. But John, he says, if you will actually think about what I'm saying, if you'll actually unplug and engage intellectually with the text, if you'll just pause for a moment, stop thinking about whatever you're thinking about. Stop paying attention to the lights. Quit counting how many places you got to go at the end of this day. Stop thinking about all that for a moment. And just think about what I'm saying. That in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was with God in the beginning. There he was. And then he goes on to say, through him, through Jesus, if you'll go back one, through him, there it is, through him, all things, not some things, not most things, but all things. Through him, all things were made. And then th this, is, this, this, is, this is amazing. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. I haven't been able to get this out of my head for the, past, for the past six weeks. I can't imagine looking at another person and believing that they were the explanation of all things. Could you imagine looking at another human being that you rub shoulders with, that you could have a conversation with, that you could place your hands on? Could you imagine looking at another person who happened to be related to you, who happened to be your best friend and saying, hey, he is the explanation of all things because he is before all things. So John says, think with me. The story of Jesus doesn't begin in a manger. It begins before that. Jesus did not come into existence in Bethlehem. Jesus has always existed. And that's extraordinary. That's incredible. 
That's mind-boggling you know, mind and mind-blowing. He says, this is how big the story of Jesus is. And he begins with, in the beginning of all beginnings, there was Jesus. That Jesus was the creator behind creation. He is the explanation behind all things. And then John, he continues. He says, in him, in Jesus, this word was life. In him was life. And this life, John said, let me think about this. How, how can I say this? This life was like light. And it was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We're going to talk about this tomorrow on Christmas Eve. Don't miss it. He, he says, but when I think back to Jesus showing up, when I think about what his birth meant, not what his birth was like. Luke writes about that. Matthew tells us a little bit about that. But, but what his birth meant. When I think about Christmas and when I think about the first Christmas and I think about when Jesus showed up, it was like the arrival of life. It was like light shining into the darkness. It was light breaking forth. He says, I think that's the best way I know how to say it. I just don't want to tell you that a baby was born. That's common. We've all seen that happen. We all know about that. He says, but when this baby was born, it was life and it was light. And it was light that shined into the darkness. And the darkness did not know what to do with that light. He says, Jesus came and he showed us. He demonstrated. He taught us. He offered us life. He showed us what true life looks like. He offered us eternal life and a better life. And this life was, it, it was light. It was warming. It was it was enlightening. He, he says, this is, this is the best way I know how to tell you about how extraordinary this story is. It's life and it's light. Because in the darkness, that's where death dwells. But over here in the light, that's where life dwells. And when Jesus showed up, he brought life and he brought light. And then he goes on and he says, he, Jesus, this word, the creator, he was in the world. Now, I'm not a good enough preacher, I'm not a good enough communicator to tell you how awesome that is, how incredible that is, that God was in the world. John says, the creator visited his creation. The timeless, spaceless God entered into time and space that he created. And then here's what John says, he says, it was tragic. He was in the world and the world did not recognize him. Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The creation did not recognize its creator. John said, that's extraordinary to even think about. That's overwhelming to think about. That, that is a tragedy of epic proportion that the created beings did not recognize the very one who had created them, the very life giver, the designer of life. He shows up and he went unrecognized. John says, but it, it's more tragic than that. Not only were the ones who were made through him did not recognize him, but he says, he came to that which was his own, his creation, not only his creation, but his, his people. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He says they rejected him because they did not recognize him. It's just not that they didn't receive him, but they rejected him. 
It wasn't as though they were passive about their resistance towards him. No, they rejected him to the point that they killed him. The creator showed up to his creation and creation killed its creator. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Who's going to come up with this on their own? A fisherman from Galilee? A small business owner who was in business with his brother and his father? That the creator of all that is shows up to his creation and his creation doesn't recognize him. His creation rejects him and his creation kills him. This is, this is, this is where John begins the story. He says, and if you find yourself underwhelmed by the story that you know so well, you need to think about what the story really means. You need to think about the story in larger terms. We read stories about how children may kill their parents or, you know, we've we've unfortunately heard stories of parents who kill children, but then occasionally we'll hear stories about how a son or a daughter kills their mother or kills their father. And and we're like, you know, it's just tragedy. We can't understand how in the world could something happen. And John says, that's what I'm trying to get you to feel. I'm trying to get you to feel the pain of this. I'm trying to get you to feel the horror of this, that the creation killed its creator. That they rejected him. They despised him. And I think John being Jewish, I think that John, I think that he had to think about what the prophet Isaiah had said about the coming Messiah. I think when John is writing as a Jewish man, he's writing with a Jewish point of reference and everything that he says has Jewish implications from the Jewish Old Testament. And when he's writing this, I I have to believe that in the back of his mind, He's recognizing just how on the spot Isaiah the prophet was. 700 years before Jesus was born, when Isaiah spoke this prophecy, here's what Isaiah said about the coming Messiah and how tragic it would be. Everybody thought it would be so triumphant when the Messiah came. But Isaiah, who some call the prince of all the prophets, when he saw the arrival of the Messiah, he says, it's going to be tragic before it's triumphant. And this is what he said. He said, the Messiah will grow up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He will have no beauty or majesty majesty to attract us to him and nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He will be despised and rejected by mankind. He will be a man of suffering and familiar with our pain. He will be like one from whom people hide their faces. He will be despised and he will be held in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we, humanity, we considered him punished by God, stricken by God and afflicted. But the reality is that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep. And we have gone astray and each of us have turned our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He will be oppressed and he will be afflicted, yet he will not open up his mouth. He will be led like a lamb to a slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent, he will not open up his mouth. And I think as John is writing this, 
to say that the creator visited creation, but creation rejected him and despised him and killed him. I think that he is seeing Isaiah 53. He's seeing the Old Testament, a brand new life to say, this story is just not a wonderful story, but it is also a painful, tragic story. And there is so much misery and so much emotion that we can relate to that we should never be underwhelmed by it. And John, in just a few sentences, when we think about what he's saying and we think about the meaning and we think about the implications of it all, he says, Jesus came. And I think what he wants us to understand is that Jesus came and he knows what it's like to be you. Now think about who you're married to and think about your best friend. Think about your mom. Think about your dad. Think about the people who know you best. And let me tell you, nobody truly knows what it's like to be you. Nobody truly knows what it's like to be me. That's the reason sometimes I can't understand you and why you would do that and why you would say that and why someone would behave that way. And that's the reason you look at me sometimes and wonder why in the world would he say that? Why would he act that way? Why would he do that? And da, 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 da. That's why we look at each other and we say those things. We're married to people and we don't understand why they do the things they do or why they would say the things that they say. Our best friends, we look at them and we don't understand them. But John said, if you just think about it for a moment, what Christmas actually means is that God became one of us. He is a man of sorrows. He is acquainted with my grief. He is acquainted with your grief. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to have anxiety and stress. He knows about that. He's experienced that. He can relate to you. He knows what it's like to be you. And to think about a savior who's not distant from us and so different from us that he doesn't get it, Christmas reminds us that God became one of us to understand us. There is no circumstance that you'll ever walk through that he doesn't understand. There's nothing that you will ever face that he will not understand what it's like for you to face that. There's nothing you will ever feel. There's nothing you will be ever tempted to do. There's no thing that you will experience that he is not acquainted with. This is core to our faith. This is core for us being overwhelmed at the Savior who showed up on the planet, that he knows you, he knows me, he knows us. He sympathizes with us. Do you know who you have the most sympathy for? The people you understand the most. You understand where they're coming from. You understand how they feel. Perhaps you've been in the same situation and you can sympathize, you can relate, you can understand because you've been there. And to think about a savior who can sympathize with us who understands us, who gets it. He's just not God and so distant and so big that we can't relate. No, he's walked where we walked. He's faced what we faced. He knows about us. He's acquainted with our pain. And at Christmas, God, in, in, in ways that I, I, I can't even articulate, God learned what it was like to be us. That Jesus, in some way, like the song says, mild he laid his glory by. Or as Paul, the theologian, would try to come along saying in Philippians chapter 2, that in some way, though Jesus was equal with God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And, and in some way, he laid aside all that it meant to be God while still being God. Extraordinary. Incredible. 
that God walked in our shoes so that he can understand what it's like to be us. No wonder Jesus could say on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How did he know? Because he became one of us. And John goes on and he says, yet, yet though some didn't recognize him and though some rejected him, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John, how, how, do, you, how do you receive him? What does it mean not to reject him and not to resist him and to not, you know, to not be one of those people who didn't recognize who Jesus actually was? What does it mean to receive him? And John would say it means to believe in him. When you believe in him, you receive him. When you receive him, it's because you've believed in him. You believe that he is who he said he was, that he is the savior of the world. He is God the son. He is the son of God. That he showed up, he lived sinless, he lived in real time among people. And in some way, he was God's sacrifice for sin. And on the cross, he carried your sin, he carried my sin, he carried the sin of the world. And when he died on the cross, in ways that we can't fully wrap our finite brains around, he died in our place. He received our guilt, so in some way, if we believe in him and on him, we could receive his innocence so that we could be accepted, reconciled to God. John says, that's what the story of Jesus is all about. This is the point of the story, that when he was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead to open the door to you and to me to say, anybody who will, let them come. Take a drink of the water of life. Anybody who's hungry, let them come. Eat of the bread of life. Believe and receive. He says, yet to as many who received him, they believed on his name. And he gave the right, the privilege, the gift of them becoming children of God. Now think about that. Children of God. Perhaps a son, a daughter of God. You've placed your faith in Jesus. That's who you are. We don't even think about it. We're not even moved by it. That I am a son of God. Yes, Keith Barton is my father. 305 Barkley Drive, Middlesbrough, Kentucky. But even greater than that, God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who controls the cosmos, who upholds it with the power of his hand. That's my heavenly father. I am his son. I am an heir to all that he has, a joint heir with Jesus. This is an extraordinary story. John said, we become children of God. And then he moves on to familiar ground. He says, the word became flesh. Again, don't miss it. God became a person. He made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and full of truth. John said, if I tried to describe Jesus to you, the best way I know how, the only way I know how is to say that Jesus was full of grace and truth. If you want to know what Jesus was like, because I'm sure John got asked that question thousands of times. After Jesus ascended back to the Father and John becomes a pastor and he's traveling around, he's telling about his story and about his relationship with Jesus and about what he saw Jesus do and how he watched Jesus die and he talked about how he saw Jesus come back to life. And I'm sure people, wouldn't you want to ask John, somebody who had walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, touched Jesus, wouldn't one of your first questions be, John, what was he like? 
Sit down, John. Come over for dinner. Take me out to coffee. Whatever. Tell me what he was like. I want to know what he was like. And John says, listen, I've had this question so many times. Let me just tell you, the best way I know how is that he was full of grace and truth. Let me tell you what I saw in Jesus, John would say. He never compromised the truth. And he never put conditions on grace. John said, I know. It's extraordinary. He never compromised the truth. And he never put conditions on grace. His truth was absolute. He was the truth. His truth was what was real about people and real with the world and real about sin. He told the truth. He taught the truth. He was the truth. You know what truth is? You know what truth really is? You know, we, we have different ideas. We think truth are statements and we think truth are... Truth is God's vision for our life. That's what truth is. It's what God envisions for us and what it means for us to be his children. That's what truth is. It's God's vision for our life. It's this is good and this is not. This is right and this is not. That, that's what truth. And John said, I saw that constantly in him. He was always casting vision for this is God's plan for your life. Because Jesus believed that truth brought freedom. He believed that truth brought protection. But at the same time, he offered grace that was unconditional, unearned, undeserved, uninterrupted. Grace that you could not buy. And grace that you could not earn. He, he said, that's what I saw in him. Jesus didn't lower the standard. Jesus raised the standard. You know how much Jesus raised the standard? So high that you could never reach it. And then you know what? He let people know they could never reach it. And then he went and died for all those who fell short of the standard. John said, that's truth and that's grace. You know what truth is? Truth says, I know everything about you. I know everything about you. But grace says, but you don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend. I love you just as you are. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, that's truth and grace. Grace says, there's nothing that you can do to make me love you more, nothing you can do to make me love you less. It's unearned, it's unconditional. It's me accepting you based on no merits that you have. Truth says, you're guilty. But grace says, I love you anyway. Full of grace and truth. Truth says, it was you who ran away. It was you who broke this relationship. But grace says, when you ran away from me, I came after you. Jesus was truth and grace. Truth says, you don't deserve it. But grace says, I'm going to give it to you anyway. Truth says, you're guilty and you deserve it. But grace says, move out of the way. I'm gonna take what you deserve so that you can take of mine what you don't deserve. And John said, if you wanna know what Jesus was like, it's grace and truth. And he says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace. Let's all just read that phrase together. Grace in place of grace. John said, let me tell you, I could tell you about some of the boneheaded, knuckleheaded, dumb things that I've done, some of the crazy things I've said. Let me tell you, one day Jesus told us about him going to the cross, told us about how he was going to get flogged and how he was going to suffer, bleed and die, and he was going to die. One of the most painful deaths anybody could ever imagine. 
Instead of caring about what he was trying to say to us, let me tell you what, what I was doing. I was with my brother James and we got our mom, who you know, was Jesus' aunt. We got our moms to go, you know, to go ask Jesus if we could sit on his right hand and his left hand when he comes into the kingdom. Jesus was talking about his death and we were so self-absorbed, the only thing that we could think about was the seating arrangements in the kingdom. He said, do you know how embarrassed I am about that at this point in my life? I imagine John would say, that was one of my worst moments. I was so calloused and so numb about what Jesus was saying. The only thing that I cared about was me. But you know what he gave me? In my most selfish, ugly moment, grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. He said, I can tell you about my friend Peter who denied Jesus publicly, not once, not twice, but three times. But you know what Jesus gave him in response? Grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. You can look back over your life and I can look back over my life and in the worst and in the darkest and the most bleak things that we have ever participated in, been a part of, the only thing we've received from him is grace on top of grace on top of grace. Grace so amazing you can't outsin it. Grace so amazing you can't outrun it. Grace so amazing you can't outpace it. Paul would come along saying, hey, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. You can't exhaust the grace of God. John said, that, that's, that's what Christmas is all about. That he showed up and grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. He says, for the law, you know what the law was? It's just truth on steroids. That's what the law was. The law says, hey, you're a lawbreaker. I don't, I don't care which one you broke, you're a lawbreaker. There's nobody here who's not a lawbreaker. You are sitting amongst the people who are lawbreakers. And no one lawbreaker is better than another lawbreaker. That's what the law says. The law says you break one point, you're guilty of it all. That's truth. The law says that the wages of sin is death. That's That's truth. He says, but grace and truth. Yeah, we get truth with Jesus. <laughs> Thank God. We also get grace. That the law keeper, the only law keeper, died for law breakers so that law breakers could be treated as law keepers. And then he ends up here. No one has ever seen God. No one. But the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. And John said that is the most extraordinary part of Christmas. The most overwhelming part of Christmas is that Jesus showed up so that you and I would know what God is like. Chances are, many of us, some of us, we have a terrible idea. We have a terrible image that comes to mind when we think about God. We have some healthy images when it comes to God, but we also have some unhealthy images when it comes to God. And here's the thing, the way that you see God, the way that I see God, it shapes the way that we see one another. It shapes the way that we see ourselves. It shapes the way that we see circumstances in our life. It shapes everything. And John said, the most overwhelming thing about Christmas is that Jesus showed up to pull back the curtain on God, to bring God out of the shadows and put God in the light, to say, this is what God is like. Jesus said it as clear as anybody. 
He says, when you've seen me, anyone who has seen me has seen who? The Father. He looked at his guys that night and he said, listen, gentlemen, you are as close to the Father as what you will ever be. When you have seen me, when you have placed your eyes on me, when you've listened to me, you have heard and seen the Father. Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation of God. Jesus claimed to be the best explanation of God. The Old Testament shadows. What can you tell from a shadow? Not much. You can misunderstand a shadow. You can misinterpret a shadow. But Jesus said, okay, enough with the shadows. Here is the substance. And if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what those shadows actually look like and what those shadows actually means, then look at me. Because the old, the old covenant, the Old Testament, it all pointed to me all along. And what was in the shadows and what was cloudy and unclear, here it is. No clouds, no shadows, in the light. If you want to know what God is like, look at me. And that's what the whole New Testament teaches us. Paul would say this, the sun is the image of the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews would say that in times past, God spoke through the prophets. And in many times, in many various ways, God spoke. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he's made the universe. And then he says this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. John said, no one has ever seen God except the one and only who has made him known. Jesus pulled back the curtain. And the point being, if you want to know what God is like, listen to Jesus and look at Jesus. And if your ideas and images about God, if your theology and beliefs about God doesn't look like Jesus and it doesn't sound like Jesus, you need to drop it and find a new one. Because Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yes, nature teaches us about God. And yes, the old covenant prophets and the law teaches us about God. But the clear, the only exact replication, representation of God was Jesus. And Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he constantly taught what God was like. He said, God is like a shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one. That God is like a father that when his son left home and spent his inheritance and became a rebel, received him back with open arms and threw a party for him when he came back. No strings attached, no loopholes, no anger. He said, God is not a record keeper. He forgives endlessly, 70 times seven. When you think about God, Jesus would say over and over again, let me help you see him the way that he is. Jesus would tell stories and make the enemy of his day, the heroes of the story, to say that God doesn't see people the way you see people. God doesn't see people in categories. God doesn't see people with labels. God doesn't see particular types of lawbreakers. God just sees lawbreakers. God just sees a people who have fallen short of the glory of God. That's what he sees. He doesn't see things like you see. And then if you really want to know what God is like, look at what Jesus did. He went to the cross and he sided with us against sin and against death. He took the side of the victim. We had been victimized by sin and perhaps self-inflicted 
wounds we also had. But neither mattered to him. He sided with us in truth and unconditional, unending, uninterrupted grace. And he says, as many who will receive him, those who will believe upon his name, he will give the right to become children of the Father. Heavenly Father, John gives us an extraordinary version, an overwhelming version of the Christmas story. God, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if anyone's here today and they've not trusted Jesus, they've they've not believed on his name, they've not trusted that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, that he showed up in real time in history in the first century, that his life was witnessed, his death was witnessed, his resurrection was witnessed and documented, that his death, burial, and resurrection, it has profound implications for every single one of us. And that if we will believe upon him, we will receive eternal life and we will become children of God. And if you've never made that decision, if you've never trusted Jesus to be Lord and Savior, if you've never placed your faith upon Jesus for what he did for you on the cross and what it means that you can be fully, freely forgiven and received by the Father, Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus did for you. I would invite you to pray a simple prayer. Something like this. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. Thank you that Jesus proved that you love me when he died for me on the cross. Thank you that your death was a sacrifice for my sins. That when you were buried and when you were raised again to life, It was assurance that all who would believe would also receive life. And today, the best way I know how, I receive that gift of life. I make you my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name. And for the rest of us who've prayed that prayer, that we're followers of Jesus, may the story and the truth and the meaning of this season, may it not ever become ordinary. May we always be overwhelmed with a story that says, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, come and be made sons and daughters of God.